This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. All right, so this morning we're going to start a new sermon series called The Way. This is The Way. We're looking at, uh, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount a little bit. And this passage in Matthew introduces uh, this way that Jesus is presenting. And so for the next probably eight weeks or so, we're going to look at different parts of the Sermon on the Mount to see how Jesus is informing the world. Because remember last, uh, the last couple of months, we, we looked at the seven churches in Revelation and we talked and sometimes the brutal hard facts of where the church is in America and where we are and where it's headed. And it was kind of like, oh, this is tough. Where is Woodland in one of these churches? Where is all these churches in Woodland? What are we like? What's going on? But now we're going to say, what's the solution to the problem of the church in the West, the issues that we face? And the answer is, it's the number one Sunday school answer. Somebody say it. Jesus, right? Jesus is the answer. And he's going to guide us and inform us as to how we can be part of what he's doing to gain control of our lives and to serve him and to be part of what he's doing. So we're going to look at this. So I want to invite you, if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Matthew chapter 3. This is Jesus introducing the way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, He said to them, come sit in a comfortable place. Let me get you a cup of coffee and make everything easy for you. No, 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 sorry. That's not what it says. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for allowing us to hear it. Thank you, Father, for creating this universe and creating us. God, help us as we listen and hear to what you have to say. That, God, you would, you would be clearly speaking to my brothers and sisters, that what I say that's of no value would be like the chaff that blows away or that is burned. But what you say and what you want them to learn and what you want them to do in light of what 
you've taught them would be made clear. What do you want us to do in light of what you've done for us? Give us clarity in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, my family and I traveled out to Denver, Colorado for the General Assembly, which is the annual meeting of Presbyterians. Uh, and we were out in Denver. Uh, the family came out a little bit after me, after the General Assembly. We decided, hey, look, we don't get to Colorado. Let's take a mountain uh, vacation in, in Winter Park, uh, Winter Park, uh, Colorado. So we, we got a van, uh, and my mom uh, joined us, so she flew to Denver. So we had all of our stuff in a minivan, and as we're driving from Denver, but by the time we picked up my mom from the airport, it had gotten dark. And if you know anything about Denver, it's kind of on the plains right next to all the mountains, right? Everything's flat for all these miles, all these kilometers, and then all of a sudden, the big mountains go up. And so you pull into the airport, it's getting dark, pick up mom, put her like 17 suitcases in the van, and then we're going and we're driving up to, sorry mom, I know you're watching, but it's okay to bring lots of suitcases. Um, so we, then we have to make, stop at the grocery store because we don't really know what the grocery store condition is going to be like in Winter Park. And we're, you, know, you got to breakfast, I've got to have a bunch of stuff. So we, <laughs> we were in this van, we were totally loaded with luggage, and then it's like, groceries and bags and food like for a week of just tons of stuff and so I'm like I'm driving the car with like a giant something in my lap and there's everything cans are rolling around and all this stuff and we're driving up into the mountains and, you know being from Florida really not too far from Mount Dora I know how to drive in the mountains right no Mount Dora is not that tall you can't climb it I don't know why they call it Mount Dora but anyway so you get out of the mountains of Colorado and we're going up and it's you know you're driving up and up and up but you've got to go essentially over the mountains to get from this side to this side to where Winter Park is. And so there's this really windy road, windy, windy road. Sometimes you're going this way and then you're coming back and it's dark and there's no lights up there. And it's, it's in June. So of course, on the mountaintop, it's snowing, which makes total sense. And it's coming down. And some of us in our family are better with heights than others. Some are better than others. So we're driving and it's like, slow down. That's what I'm saying, you know. Uh, and we're like, you think you're going to crash because there's so many switchbacks, back and forth, back and forth. And it was intense. We were like, I'm like gripping the steering wheel, you know. And the Cheetos. We're just like, come on, don't let these things break. So finally we make it over and we survive. We survive this trip. But it was fascinating to me was that this path, this road in part, was a path that had been created by native peoples who lived on one side of the mountain and came to the other side of the mountains because they were hunting. So there was a path that had been created. Now, it wasn't exactly the path of the road, but that's really where this, this road came from. It was just following, essentially, the way that had been trod over time to make sure that people found their way. It's up and down. And so as you're going off the path, when you're on the path, you've got to stay close to the path, right? Because if you go too far one way, if you get off the path one way, you could find yourself lost in the forest and not going the right direction to the place where the animals are that you're going to be hunting. But if you go this side, what happens? You fall off a cliff and die a perilous, terrible death, you and your donkey or whatever means of transportation. So you got to stay on the path. You got to stay on the way. You're connecting where this is going, right? This is the way. Well, the way in the Bible is a really big idea. All throughout the Bible, it talks about the way. It talks about this idea of a path. You know, we know that God's people are always on a journey. We think about the Old Testament, how God delivered them from Egypt. He took them through the wilderness. They were 
following him. There was a, a flaming torch and a cloud that was leading them. We, we recognize that like our, our story is connected to people who were on a journey. In the Bible also, in the Psalms especially, the idea of path or way appears often. God's people are always on the move. We're always going from one place to, an, to another. And, and maybe we're not even moving geographically. Maybe you've lived in the same home or the same city for decades. You're on a journey too. A journey hopefully towards maturity, uh, towards ministry, uh, growing through the challenges of life. And you know, in, in the Bible, in the New Testament, the Christians are only called Christians a couple of times. They're mostly followers of the way. Followers of the way. The way appears actually probably four times more than the word Christian. And it's much more than directions to a place. It's a way of life. It's a creed. It's a, it's a vision for what God has called us to be, to be at once within the culture and living in the world with all of its challenges and temptations, but also being then distinct from it. Essentially remaining on the path that God has marked out for us, not turning from the left, not turning from the right, but going in the way that Jesus would have us to go. If you've seen the show uh, the, uh, on Disney Plus called The Mandalorian, it's a show about these bounty hunters who follow a creed. And what they say is, this is the way. And then someone says, this is the way. It's not just what they think, it's how they actually live. What, what they believe, what goes on in their heads, informs their actions. It informs what they do. You see, there, there are people, in some ways, like the Israelites. Their, their home planet has been destroyed, and they are on a journey. And they have this really cool armor made out of Beskar. It's this super durable metal that even a blaster can't come through, in case you're wondering. But well, the way they live out their life is through a duty. They live by the code. They continue the traditions of those who are before them. They never remove their masks. Maybe until the end of the show. I won't spoil it for you. But in this passage that we're talking about in Matthew, G John is proclaiming that a new king is coming. And Matthew's telling about this. Matthew's giving us this account. He's talking about how John, the baptizer, is preparing the way before the Lord. He's announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he says. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's essentially saying everything that we look forward to, this restoration, this deliverance, the very presence of God that we want to have in our midst is about to happen with the coming of this new and mighty king. He's pointing them to a coming Messiah who's going to lead them in this journey that they're on, this way that they're on, this way toward redemption. And we know, of course, that Jesus' way that his path included suffering. It included humiliation. It even led to his death. But it also led to this glorious victory that was accomplished on the cross. And this victory was not over the political powers of the day. It wasn't to restore the nation of Israel to dominance. It wasn't to give them financial prosperity or to have their political agenda advanced. His mission was to save them to save them from themselves, to save them from sin, which had warped their understanding of how to relate to God, how they should relate to themselves, how they should relate to others, how they should relate to the creation around them. All those things had been deeply affected. See, that's what sin does. 
It twists and turns. It takes something beautiful and good and it makes it bad. You know, when, in the garden when Adam and Eve violated his command, they, what did they do? They, they hid from God. Their relationship, because of sin, their relationship with God had been affected. Remember, God says to them, where are you? And God's not saying, huh, I wonder where they are. He's saying, where are you? It's not a question of geography, like what location are you in? It's a question of relationships. What happened to our relationship? God knows, but he's inviting them to consider what has happened to our relationship. Sin has broken that relationship. Sin broke the relationship that they had with each other. Adam and Eve ate the fruit, right? Eve ate the fruit and blamed the serpent, affecting the relationship with the creation. And Adam ate the fruit and blamed Eve. And since then, sin has affected all of our relationships. It causes hurt, misunderstanding, unmet expectations, violations, abuse, trauma, all those things sin causes in our relationships with one another. It also affects how we understand ourselves. What happened when they ate the fruit? They were ashamed. They had a, had a problem in their own hearts. And that has continued. Before they were naked and they were in full communion with God. But sin caused them to experience guilt. And it also, as I said, it broke their relationship with creation. Work was now going to be work in a way that it hadn't been before. Labor would be hard. But Jesus the King comes to bring about restoration. He begins to inaugurate the kingdom of God and to, to make the path clear for those who would follow him and to allow for redemption and restoration. As we walk in this way, we relearn what it means to have communion with God, with ourselves, with others, and creation. As we align ourselves more with Jesus and his way, those things become more clear to us as he reveals himself in our lives. See, the way is the journey that we experience as we walk with God in this world. Right? And the world is moving around us, isn't it? It's not the same as it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 24 hours ago. The world is always changing. Someone said, you know, you can't put your foot into the same river twice. Right? Because if you put your foot into a river and then you pull it out and then you put it back in, it's a different river, right? Because a whole different stretch of water has already come by. The world is changing rapidly and even more rapidly than it used to. The world's not stable. And so we need something that is. We need someone who is. Someone who we can cling to and claim who gives us courage in the midst of the challenge. And who is that? It's Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In fact, Jesus doesn't actually only mark out the way. He says he is the way. Right? Remember in John 14 when they were confused? Jesus, we don't know the way the way you're going. And he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way that we find the path. He is the one who is our orientation. He is our true north for navigating the challenges of the world in which we live. He is the answer. There's a reason why he's the number one Sunday school answer because he has the answers for us. And my concern is the way is getting harder to see. It seems as though the way of Jesus has been obscured because there are less people who are seeking really to follow him. Now, there was a time maybe when it was more clearly marked, when you could see, there's the way, that's where I go. 
But now it's not so easy to see because less people are seemingly following him, at least in America. It seems that there are other paths that are helpful for the journey. Maybe I'll just go along with this one. This person has a lot of followers on Instagram, so certainly they must know something, so I should do what they say. But these paths ultimately lead to destruction in the end. So we've talked about this and the challenge of where we are in the church. We've tried to address the reality that the church in the West is smaller, it's older, it's weaker, it's poorer, it's less vibrant than it has been in some ways. And yet there's great hope for the church in America, right? Because of Jesus. Is if we get back to following in the way and trusting in him and looking to him, then God can and will do amazing things. So we're going to try to navigate the challenges that we face by looking at some passages from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' constitution of the kingdom, the most wonderful and glorious sermon that was ever preached. We'll be dealing with things like sexual ethics, gender identity, justice, dealing with anxiety. Anyone have anxiety? Making wise judgments, how to relate to our enemies. Jesus speaks to these things. But first, Jesus is introduced by his cousin, John, the one who baptizes. And he tells them, hey, the kingdom is at hand. It's coming. It's here. It's present. And he's quoting from this line from the book of Isaiah, who was a prophet in the Old Testament. Isaiah says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make paths straight. See, in that moment... In Isaiah, when he was speaking, the Jews were captive in Babylon. They had been taken away from Jerusalem in their homeland, and they had been forced to live in exile. And so then they were thinking about, what is it going to be like for us to go back to Jerusalem to try to rebuild the city, to try to restore what has been devastated, what the horde has taken away? What is going to happen? The city that's in ruins, how are we going to restore it? So about three weeks ago, I was in in, uh, in Lebanon, and uh, about 45 minutes away is a city called Byblos, which is a city that has been the, the longest continually occupied city in the Mediterranean. So f- for 8,000 years, continually, people have lived in this, uh, this city. Now, part of the city is like a normal city. There's commercial markets and restaurants. You can get a shawarma. You can get all kinds of good food. It's a sandwich thing. And, uh, and so we... We were visiting that, but then we also were able to get in past this fence. Sometimes they don't let you in, but into this area where the, like the first part of the city had been. Um, it's, an, it's an amazing place. And oh, by the way, did you, did you hear why the archaeologist uh, quit his job? Yeah, he realized that his uh, career was in ruins. <laughs> Dad joke, saw it. Anyway. So we're walking around all these built. That was a, awesome. All these buildings and the stones. There's a citadel. And it's, it's fascinating because people have lived there for so long. Like one age lives and then they build on that. And then the Romans were there with these massive columns. And then they used the columns to build the next building and everything. And so it was really just amazing. All these stones. There was a spring that was dug out into the ground and had all these rocks. And what was fascinating to me is that like once we got through the gate, they're like, just walk around like on the ruins. <laughs> you know, like you would have to be like this far away in any other country to see the ruins. We're like walking on this old amphitheater that had been there for like 4,000 years. And, uh, and Gus, who is four, says, he goes, what's the matter with this place? Everything's all broken down. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because it's, it's old. It's in ruins. Well, I imagine when the people of God are thinking about getting 
out of Babylon and going back to Jerusalem, that's what they would be encountering. Their beautiful, glorious city that they had created was in ruins. And that's a picture of Jerusalem when God has called them back. And so what John is announcing is that what has been broken down and in ruins, disheveled, burdened, crushed, defeated, no use anymore, God, I am coming back to restore. I'm going to build something that's even greater than this earthly city that after 8,000 years has gone. We know that God is going to bring a new city in the new Jerusalem to restore all of his glory. In the world that we live in, the world that's in ruins in many ways, God is going to bring the gospel to bear. You see, our culture is in ruins, isn't it, right? Rates of depression and anxiety and suicide are on the rise among our young people. Institutions like marriage and the family uh, and mass media are in a state of disintegration, right? Think about that. What does the word disintegration mean? They are no longer integrated. They are falling apart as though they are in ruins or there has been an, an earthquake. We see these major upheavals in the economy, in the entertainment industry, the Me Too movement, immigration, scandals in politics and sports, not to mention the challenge of a global pandemic that has affected us all. And this pandemic has reminded us that we really aren't in control of all the things that we thought we were in control of. I can move where I want to move. I can go where I want to go. Well, we've realized that's not the case. We are susceptible. We are vulnerable. So what is the response to these realities? How do we live in light of the way? I just want to take a look at who it was that was coming out to see uh, John. You think about it, there's different people that are coming out to see John uh, as he was baptizing or before he baptized Jesus. I mean, think about this. I, I love this, this picture because John's ministry is really amazing to me um, because the, the, you know, the way of thinking today is we have to put your church on a, on a, in a good spot, right? Location, location, location. You need to have a good location so that people will drive by and see it. You want to have a good website you want to have uh, good preaching. You want to have good uh, music. You want to have a good uh, social media thing, a catchy phrase to draw people in. Well, that was not John's strategy, <laughs> right? He is out in the wilderness, and he's, got, he's not wearing a tie. He's not saying, hey, we got coffee. Sorry, we don't have coffee. Maybe one day we'll have coffee again. But he's not like, you know, it's not comfortable seats with cushions. It's, it's like roughing it. And what happens? People are coming out. It says all Jerusalem, all Judea, the surrounding countryside, people are coming because they're longing for something. They're desperate for something that can help them face the challenges of their day. It doesn't matter where they have to go. They're willing to go wherever it takes because they want to hear this message. They're drawn to him. He's this prophet, right? And he doesn't mince words. He's harsh with them. He's away from the power structure, away from the leadership, the, the political, the military, the religious. And yet people are drawn to him. Everyone's going out, being baptized and confessing their sins. See, this was the beginning of a new era for the people of God. They were leaving the comfort of the city to be baptized in the Jordan River. They were acknowledging their sinfulness before God and one another. A movement had begun. What an exciting time to be alive in the midst of the challenge of the wilderness, God was doing something new and powerful. 
But there are also other people that were coming out. Who were they? It says there's one line in there. It says the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And who were they? John has uh, harsh words for them, doesn't he? He says to them, you're a brood of vipers. A brood of vipers. You know, that's not, doesn't seem to me like what we should have our ushers saying when people come to church, right? Like a visitor coming in, and the usher's like, brood of vipers. You know, that's not the strategy, right? But John doesn't care. He's not mincing words. Who are the Pharisees? And who were the Sadducees? Well, the Pharisees were the, a member of this religious sect that valued a strict observance of the law. And they really wanted to do the commands. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we learned that they're mainly his most significant adversary because, he, why? He's repeatedly calling out their hypocrisy. You see, they wanted to the strict observance of the law, but, but more than an inward desire to please and honor God, they wanted to appear to be righteous. They wanted to wear their fancy clothes and come to the services and look good, but inwardly they were dying. So today, now, calling someone a Pharisee is, is pejorative. It's a bad word to say you're a Pharisee because it means a person who presents themselves as religious but doesn't really have a heart for Christ, doesn't have a heart for God to serve and to love. Someone who maybe identifies with the church but who's not really following Jesus. They're calling out the sin of others. They're, they're, they're wanting to look holy but they don't have the inward desire for godliness. Their heart's not in it. Instead of being made righteous by Jesus, they're self-righteous, saying, look at me. Now, what about a Sadducee? They're on the other end of the spectrum. They, too, were a religious sect, but they didn't believe in the resurrection. They only held to a portion of the Bible, the first five books, but the other part, eh, we're just going to gloss over those parts. Maybe the prophetic parts that are kind of ornery. We're just going to ignore those. They deny the immortality of the soul and the existence of angelic spirits. You see, they had a form of faith, but they had lost some really important commitments to what the Word of God had said. So it's as though they're beginning to assimilate into the culture. Like, well, we believe in God, but kind of everything goes. Does this sound familiar? Do we have these two things going on in the world today? Right? There's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes says. We still have people who would say, this is what you have to do, and you need to do it, even though I don't really do it. And other people say, eh, anything goes. Whatever you want. You see, for some, religion is an outer display of righteousness, which is self-righteousness. The belief is that if we can get people to obey the laws, if we can get them to do what is right, that will make our world a better place. And the problem is all those people who say, just get rid of everything. We need to bring it down. Now the others, they say, well, let's move beyond those rules. Let's move beyond that oppression and that repression. The best thing for society is just to kind of get rid of some of that stuff and move on and just all get along together really well. Those old ways, all those laws and things have oppressed people and they've repressed people and we'd be better off without them. And so what does Jesus say? Notice that he doesn't say, just find a happy medium. 
Just find yourself in the middle. Be a moderate for crying out loud. Not too extreme on either end. No. Jesus says, I'm the way. It's as though there's a, this is a way and this is a way. But Jesus is saying, there's a third way, which is actually, it's the only way. It's the way of Jesus. You see, uh, with Jesus, the law is never minimized. The standard for God's people is complete and total holiness. And Jesus calls us to account for holiness for every aspect of the word of God. It's the standard by which we will be judged and we are judged is perfect, complete holiness. And yet Jesus also is exceedingly generous and free because he says, I give you the whole kingdom for free. Now it costs him a lot, but it's free. You can receive it. You can enjoy it. You can celebrate it. And you can also communicate about it because it's the greatest thing in the world. It's totally free. And here's the deal. None of us, because of our own righteousness, are in the kingdom. Therefore, we shouldn't be judgmental about those who are not living away the way that we think they should. We should be rejoicing that we've been given salvation, not because of any righteous thing that we've done, but because of his mercy, it says in Titus. We have much to celebrate. We have much to rejoice in. For I know that the ways that I've not met the standard, the ways I've not been pleasing to God and what I've done and what I've left undone, Jesus has paid for. He's given me life and salvation. And so then my response to that is to walk in the way of Jesus. It's to do what he says because he knows what's best for me. He knows the way. He knows how I'm tempted to, to go off to the left or go off to the right. And I think for all of us, we're all in those right-left camps sometimes, depending on the issue, depending on the cultural moment, depending on the, the church. We can lean one way or the other. And Jesus is continually saying to us, this is the way. One of the people in, our, uh, in history who sought to find that grace that we've been given through Jesus Christ so meaningful was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he was a German pastor who had moved to, uh, to America uh, to study uh, as in the lead up to World War II. And he was a brilliant scholar and he would have people that would come to his home and study and reflect. And, but he was German. And as he saw the rise of the Third Reich, felt compelled to go and do something about it. And people were like, well, no, just stay here and teach. Your, your teaching ministry is so vital and so important. It sounds a little bit like what happened with Franz Jagerstadter. Like, why would you go back over to Germany and take a stand? Why would you enter into this when this is so important? But he felt conviction because he knew the grace that he had received through Jesus Christ compelled him to live in the way. And for him, that meant challenging what Hitler was saying, challenging what Hitler was doing. And he too ended up being executed. But he said this about grace. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. 
we know the illustration that he's bringing to us, right? Jesus calls these men, some of his disciples, leave your nets, come, I will make you fishers of men. This is the invitation that Jesus gives to all of us to be people of the way. It's to be fishers of people. Certainly you can do that as you are doing your job, as you're a teacher, as you're an employer, as you're an administrative person, as you're a parent. We do this along the way, but it's an invitation to go from just listening and observing to entering onto the path. Because you see, when we went to Winter Park, we had a great time. There were beautiful mountains. We got to see moose and a fox, and there was a billy goat up on the, uh, near the road, and it was all on the other side of that mountain. You see, if we had just come up to the path and thought, you know, it's kind of unclear. It's pretty windy. It's snowing. It's really curvy. It's dark. I don't know what's going to happen. We would have missed out on this awesome, amazing experience that we got to have. Well, it's the same thing for us when we enter into the kingdom of God. We, you can stand at the threshold and just observe. And you can say, well, you know, I'm just going to come and sit and listen to another one. Or you can begin to say, I want to be engaged and to learn how to obey. And then to obey so that I can learn more about who God really is. That's the, the thrill of following Jesus in the way. So my invitation to you is to pass over the threshold is to say, what's the next step for me to really grow in my faith? For me to, to take on ministry, to engage the world, to move away from this side where I'm just, just acting like I'm doing something, or to move away from this side, which is says, hey, nothing matters. I'm doing extremes here, of course. And enter into the way to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm going to do whatever you ask me to do, even if I don't know what I'm doing. Think about Catherine, what she said when, when women obviously came up to her and said, hey, would you, go like to, would you like to go work with women in the red light district? Probably not on the bucket list, right? But yeah, she said yes. Did she know how to do it before she did it? No. Does that matter? No. It's saying, yes, Lord, I'm going to do what you asked me to do, and I'm going to figure out how to do it along the way. We're going to fail forward. And we want to be the kind of people that reach goal number four, right? Is to be the kind of people who share our faith as we go along the way all the time. And the way that we become those kinds of people is to get close to Jesus because that's where he's walking. So will you do that with me? What's the one step that you need to take this week to put you in that kind of place where you're obeying more of Jesus in light of what he's done? What's the one step? I want you to do it because God told you to. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.